0: Beloved, with this sermon, we finish the series on Christ's parables. And not everyone is convinced that this is a parable. In many ways, it seems to be simply a prophecy concerning the final judgment. It does not, for example, use much imagery. We do have this idea, though. Of sheep being separated from goats. Nor do we read something like this, the kingdom of heaven is like unto, which is how a parable often presents itself. It simply begins this way, when the Son of Man shall come into his glory. Still, I intend to treat it as a parable because it has some symbolic elements, and therefore it is a fitting conclusion to this series on Christ's parables. The parable, if we might call it a parable, describes the final judgment, that great day which will close human history, when Jesus Christ returns raises the dead, brings all of the people who have ever lived from the beginning to the end of the earth to stand before him, and he shall judge them. And that final judgment then, beloved, is an awesome day, the day of days, when Jesus Christ shall come in great glory. Jesus describes it this way, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And then in verse 34 and elsewhere, Jesus is called the King. The Son of Man comes from heaven He sits upon his throne, and then he is called the king. And that day, beloved, is a terrifying day for the wicked. The wicked don't like to think about that day. The wicked prefer to think that that day is a fictional idea that Christians have invented, but that day is coming... And it's also a wonderful day for us, for God's people. On that day, we shall be publicly vindicated, publicly commended, publicly glorified, and publicly rewarded. Notice then the parable of the final judgment. The parable of the final judgment. Notice first, blessed sheep or cursed goats, the two categories. Second, justification or condemnation. And third, everlasting life or death. The final judgment according to Jesus begins with the separation of mankind into two distinct groups. And notice that Jesus speaks here of one final day of judgment in which all nations, and therefore all individuals of all those nations, are judged. Verse 32 speaks of all nations being gathered. All those diverse nations which are scattered across the globe And all those people from all those nations who have died in history will be gathered, will be brought together before the Lord Jesus. And of course, although not mentioned here, all angels and all devils will be gathered for judgment too. They'll be gathered because Jesus Christ shall call them out of their graves in one great general resurrection. They'll be gathered whether they want to be gathered or not. The wicked will not want to be gathered to appear before Jesus Christ for judgment. And the righteous will welcome the day of judgment on which they are gathered before Jesus Christ. This judgment day cannot be avoided, however. You can avoid some summons to some judgments, perhaps. You might flee to the mountains to try to escape some court summons, but not this one. This one cannot be ignored. This one cannot be avoided, All people will be gathered before Jesus Christ. No one, therefore, will be missing. Kings, emperors, presidents, judges, people of great power and authority in this world, they shall be gathered and judged. Pontius Pilate, who judged Jesus, Caiaphas, Judas Iscariot, Those Roman soldiers who crucified him, they'll be gathered. Unbelievers of all kinds will be gathered, whether atheists or agnostics or Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Hindus or Buddhists or whatever else. Rich, poor, bond-free, powerful, the downtrodden masses, young, old, Jew, Gentile, all will be gathered before the Lord, and we shall be gathered too. This judgment, notice, includes um, includes believers, unbelievers and believers together. Now, some, of course, deny this. They say that there will be two judgments, at least two judgments, one judgment of God's people and another judgment of the wicked, or they will say that there will be no judgment for God's people at all. But Jesus speaks of one judgment in which there will be a division, notice, between the sheep and the goats. And we know from the rest of the parable that the sheep are a reference to God's believing people. So they shall be there at the beginning of the judgment with the unbelieving people. Believers will be judged, therefore. But notice, they will not be condemned. We ought not to confuse the word judgment with condemnation. There is a judgment of all men. There is not a condemnation of all men. The wicked will be judged and condemned. We will be judged and acquitted. We will be judged and justified. And this is the great public day of judgment, not a private individual judgment, which happens at the point of death, when a person passes into eternity. God judges and really has already judged judged that person and he goes either to heaven or to hell but this is the final public judgment and the purpose of this final public judgment is not so we can see who's going to heaven and who's going to hell that has been determined that is already known but rather it is to show publicly that God is just God wills in this final judgment to declare himself before all men and angels to be just because God's justice is denied in this world. And so God will have himself justified in the final judgment. And so the final judgment, beloved, is for the glorification of God himself and the comfort of God's people. We know, of course, from the text that believers will be present. When they first appear in the parable, the believers are mixed in with the wicked. They're like a flock, a mixture of sheep and goats. But before any verdict is announced, Christ separates his people from the wicked. And he uses an analogy or an illustration. As a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And the shepherd, of course, knows his sheep. He knows who the sheep are, he knows who the goats are, he loves the sheep, he has died for the sheep, and so he separates his people from among the wicked. And from that point onwards in the parable then, the sheep are considered separately from the goats. The sheep are there, believers are there, the goats are there, unbelievers are there together, but they are Separated on that day. The Belgian Confession says this about the final judgment. We expect that great day with a most ardent desire. We expect that great day with a most ardent desire. Notice the order here too. First, there is the separation of the sheep from the goats, and then the judge speaks. First, he takes the sheep and he places them on his own right hand, which is a position of honor. And he takes the goats and he puts them on his own left hand, hand, which is a position of dishonor. And notice how Christ the judge addresses his sheep. He says, come, verse 34, come ye blessed of my father. Come ye blessed of my father. God's blessing, as we know, is the word of God's favor, pronouncing good upon us. God calls us in this, or Christ calls us in this, and in the judgment day, he calls us blessed. Those upon whom God has placed his blessing, those upon whom God has pronounced his favor, they were always blessed. They were never cursed. They were always loved. They were never hated. And why are they blessed? not because they're worthy of blessing, but this blessing flowed to them from God's eternal decree of election. And that blessing came to them in Jesus Christ as they are blessed in him with all spiritual blessings. And those blessings were purchased for them on the cross. This is a gracious blessing. And these sheep, says the king, Enter into or inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's a kingdom. And many of the parables speak about the kingdom of heaven. There's a kingdom that has been prepared from the foundation of the world. An eternally prepared kingdom. And this kingdom has been prepared not for everyone, not for just anyone. This kingdom has been prepared, says the king, for you, for you. And so he says to his people on the day of judgment, the kingdom has been prepared for you. Well in advance prepared for you. Now you are to enter into that kingdom and how did they come into possession of this kingdom? Not by meriting it, not by working for it, not by fulfilling some condition for it, but by inheriting it. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. An inheritance, as you know, is a gift. A gift. A gift received from a parent a parent, gives their child an inheritance. And this gift, this kingdom, this inherited kingdom, comes to us as the gracious will of our Father. And this will of our Father, to use the idea of a will and testament now, has been ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of Hebrews, for example. So we have these blessed ones for whom an inheritance has been eternally prepared and who are called now to inherit that kingdom. And they're called righteous. Verse 37. Righteous. Then shall the righteous answer him. And we know also what righteous is. Righteousness is conformity to the standard of God's law. And here, these sheep are declared righteous. They're sinners. They know themselves to be sinners, but they're declared righteous. Why are they righteous? Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, came into this world, worked righteousness for them, that righteousness was imputed to them. And so on the judgment day, God looks upon his people as he always looks upon his people as righteous because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ wrought for them, purchased for them, and imputed to them by faith alone. That is God's message before he gives them a reward. That is God's message to his people, the sheep. Then he turns to the goats. The goats who have now been separated from the sheep and are placed at Christ's left hand are the opposite of sheep. They're called cursed. Verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed. God's people are called blessed. Come. These people are called cursed. Depart. And God's curse is the opposite of God's blessing. God's curse is the word of his wrath, speaking evil upon the wicked. These people have always been cursed. They've always been under God's curse. And that curse comes to them from the eternal decree of reprobation, according to which God rejected them and excluded them from salvation in Jesus Christ. They're cursed. And thus they are separated from the blessed sheep. On earth they lived side by side with the sheep. On earth they often looked like the sheep. Because sheep and goats are very similar in appearance. But they were always goats. Always unrighteous. Always wicked. Always cursed. They are the hypocrites in the church. They are the rank unbelievers in the world. They are men, for example, like the wicked servant of the previous parable, the parable of the talents. They are women, for example, like the foolish virgins of the other parable in Matthew 25. They are like the tares in the parable of the tares. They are the goats, The righteous are called into Christ's presence. Come, ye blessed, inherit. The wicked are banished. Depart from me, ye cursed. One group enters heaven. The other group enters hell. And this separation comes, occurs, even before Christ mentions any of the works that the righteous have done or any of the works that the wicked have failed to do. In the final judgment, beloved, works play a role. The good works of believers play a role, and the wicked works of the unbelievers play a role. In the final judgment, that is clear from these verses. But there's a difference between the basis or ground of something and the evidence for something. There's the basis or ground of something, that on which something is based, and then there is the evidence for something. Good works. Are not the basis or ground of the righteousness or justification of the sheep. They do not constitute the basis or the ground for their justification before God but they are evidence. Evidence that these sheep are actually righteous. Think of a human courtroom for a moment. There's a difference between this courtroom, Christ's judgment, and human judgments. In a human courtroom, the judge and the jury must deliberate. They must hear evidence. They must weigh and evaluate evidence. Jesus Christ does not need to do that because he is omniscient. He knows everything already. You come before this judge. He knows who you are. He knows every thought that has entered your mind. He knows all your words. He knows all your deeds. He knows all the circumstances of all your thoughts, words, and deeds. He omits nothing and he overlooks nothing. And therefore, Christ does not need to deliberate. Also, for the elect, there is no prosecution. Because by his death, Christ has silenced the prosecution. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, is risen again. For the reprobate, though, there is no defense. There's no prosecution for the elect, and there's no defense for the reprobate, because all of their sins rise up against them on that day, and they have no advocate to plead their case. And therefore, Jesus does not deliberate. He simply pronounces his predetermined verdict. We must, though, look at that word for in the parable. That word for appears in verses 35 and verse 42. Verse 34 says, come, inherit, and so on. And then verse 35, for... I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat, etc. And then verse 41, Depart from me, verse 42, For I was an hungered, and ye gave me no meat, etc. For means because. For usually gives a reason for something. But here, the word for does not give the reason why the elect will inherit the kingdom. It's not. You're going to inherit the kingdom because you were kind to fellow saints. That's the basis or the reason or the grounds on which you inherit the kingdom. That's not the idea of the word for here. But rather, the idea of the word for here is... Evidence. You are not blessed because you do these works, but by doing these works, you show yourselves to be the blessed ones. These works, which are the fruit of God's grace in you, these works are the evidence of your blessedness. Good works are the evidence, but not the basis of salvation. Good works show that you are a sheep, that you are righteous, that you are blessed, but they're not the reason why you're a sheep, or the reason why you are blessed, or the reason why you are righteous. The works then that constitute the evidence on the day of judgment that the sheep are righteous, are works performed in mercy to suffering saints. And the lack of these works proves on the day of judgment that the goats are wicked. Notice the kind of works that the king mentions in the text. Verse Thirty-five. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. These acts of mercy are nothing spectacular. We often think of good works. Uh, Something really quite spectacular, something that the world will look at and go, wow, what a great person that is. But these works are not spectacular in that sense, but rather they are ordinary works, and they're not beyond, therefore, the possibility of any of us. Ordinary, everyday, good works of kindness and mercy. When you feed a hungry believer, when you give a drink to a thirsty believer, when you give a weary believer a bed to sleep in or a room for the night, when you give a weary believer clothes to wear, you do these kinds of works. And these works, says Jesus, are to the least of these my brethren. So Jesus views your fellow saints, fellow believers in the church, as his brethren. And when you do those things to the least of his brethren, the lowliest and most ordinary and downtrodden of the believers in the world, when you do those things to those brethren, you do them, says Jesus, to him. To him. He identifies himself with his brethren. Brethren, they are members of his body. They are dear to his heart. They are united to him by faith. And that makes our works important. You might say, well, if we're saved by grace alone, without works, why are our works important? Well, they're important, beloved, because Christ himself will reward those works before the whole world. On the last day, Christ himself, who thinks that these works are important, will mention them. And perhaps nobody appreciated these works in this life. But Christ remembers them, and Christ delights in them, because they are the evidence of his grace working in Us. Would you like an opportunity, beloved, to serve Jesus Christ? Would you like to feed him as Martha did? Or to clothe him as some women in his day did? Or to provide accommodation for him as others did? Well, look no further than the needy saint in your life, your spouse, your children, your parents, your friends, your fellow church members. That's the test. That's the evidence that Jesus points to. It's not how grandiose is your profession of faith, but this, how do you treat others Is your love for others sincere, generous, and sacrificial? Inasmuch as ye have done it for them, ye have done it for him. Here's Hebrews 6 verse 10. Hebrews 6 verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints, or served them, minister to them, and do minister. God is not unrighteous to forget that. Others might forget that, but God does not forget that, and Christ never forgets that. In fact, Christ is keeping a record of that, and will one day Publicly acknowledge that. The reaction of the sheep when Christ publicly praises them for their works is to ask, When? That's their reaction. That's their astonished reaction. When? Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, When saw we thee and hungered and fed thee and so on? When, when, when? They cannot remember doing these things. They cannot remember doing things for which the Lord now praises them. They had not been keeping a record of their works. They hadn't got a little book saying, Well, today I did this, and then I I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And look at all of the rewards I have gathered up for myself by having all of these works in a book. No, that wasn't their motivation as they worked. They simply served the Lord out of gratitude to him with great imperfection and weakness, seeking always God's forgiveness for their sins to cleanse even their best works. That's the attitude of the child of God. We do not boast in our works. We do not place confidence in our works. We trust in God's mercy in Christ, and we serve the Lord out of love. And if Christ be pleased on the last day to mention some of these works which we have done, which we have not remembered doing, That just shows you that Christ is gracious beyond all our imagination. Out of love for his people, he mentions these works, and he rewards them. The Bible teaches, in many places, that God in Christ rewards our good works. The Bible does not teach us to despise our good works. We do not put confidence in them as the basis of our salvation, but neither do we despise them, for Christ does not despise them. Here then is Scripture's doctrine of good works and rewards in a brief summary. First, God foreordained and prepared these works for us to walk in. Ephesians 2, verse 10. Second, Christ died on the cross to give us the right and the ability to do these good works by freeing us from the bondage of sin. Third, the Holy Spirit works our good works in us so that we do them. Philippians 2, 13. They are therefore the fruit of God's grace in us. They are evidence of our faith and they are the fruit of our faith for in him. And fourth, Christ by his blood cleanses our good works so that they are acceptable to God. They are purified of the sin that cleaves to them. And fifth, God rewards the good works that we do. He prepares them. Christ died to give us the right and the ability to do them. The Holy Spirit works in us so that we do them. Christ cleanses them, and God rewards them. And so we see the reward is not merited. It's not earned It's not deserved. We don't deserve or merit or earn this reward on the last day. It is an entirely gracious reward. God prepares the work. The Spirit works the work in us. Christ sanctifies the work. And then God crowns that work with an everlasting reward. Hum. Ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, for I was hungered and so on. And then there's evidence brought against the wicked goats. Their condemnation is found in this. They did not perform acts of mercy to God's people, and therefore, in so doing, they refused to serve Christ, whom they saw in Christ's brethren. And that sobering, that is in itself, is enough evidence to prove that these goats are without grace, are unbelieving, and are wicked. Their sins of omission are enough. Evidence, more than sufficient evidence for their condemnation. The wicked could have helped God's children. That's Christ's point. They had many opportunities to do so, but because they hated Christ, They hated those who represented Christ, and so they did not give kindness to those suffering saints. If kindness toward Christians is evidence of faith, then neglect is evidence of unbelief. If kindness is evidence of love for Christ, then cold indifference is evidence of hatred for Christ. And such coldness. And such neglect and such indifference towards God's people deserve damnation. Remember the rich man in Luke 16? He allowed a poor, suffering believer to starve to death on his doorstep rather than lift a finger to help him. He's a goat. God will say to him, I was an hungerant, and ye gave me no meat. Inasmuch as ye did it not unto Lazarus, ye did it not unto me. Christ takes it personally when his people are neglected and cruelly ignored. Christ notices, Christ keeps a record of these things. Perhaps there were times when such people felt forgotten. Their bellies were empty, their throats were parched, their bodies shivering in the cold, saints rotting in dungeons, shown no mercy, shown no kindness, shown only cruelty, Forgotten by the world, Christ remembers. Christ keeps a detailed, precise record. All our merciful works of kindness are recorded. And all the opportunities that the wicked have, neglected and despised, those are recorded as well. And if the acts of omission are recorded, so are the acts of cruelty and persecution. On the last day, every wicked deed performed against the church shall be avenged. And the wicked, they claim ignorance. Lord, when? When saw we an unhungered or a thirst or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister unto thee? And the answer is given to them, Verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, my brethren, ye did it not to me. No excuse for the wicked on the last day. So there's the separation of sheep and goats, and there's the justification of God's people and the vindication of God's people, and then the condemnation of the wicked. And finally, there is everlasting life or death. In the parables, Jesus describes the punishment of the wicked. Think of that in many of the parables. Speaks of fire. Speaks of cast into outer darkness. Speaks of, speaks of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the parable of the foolish and wise virgins, there was being left outside. In another parable, it was being slain before the king. Here, Jesus speaks of everlasting fire and everlasting punishment. Verse 41. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And verse 46, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Here, beloved, is Jesus' doctrine of hell. Jesus' doctrine of everlasting punishment. Jesus had the most to teach on this subject. Hell is fire. These the goats shall go away into everlasting punishment. The fire of hell, says Jesus, is forever. And that's the fearful thing about it. it's forever. And notice verse forty six talks about everlasting punishment and life eternal and probably the translators thought to themselves we'll have some variety here in verse 46 everlasting punishment life eternal it's quite poetic but really the two words everlasting and eternal are the same in the greek and so they ought to be the same in the english as well the point being that the punishment is as everlasting is as eternal as heaven If hell is not forever then heaven is also not forever. There's no getting around it. Everlasting punishment. Everlasting fire. A tormenting flame, fill Filling the body and the soul of the wicked with unspeakable misery. A fire burning forever and ever which has no end. God present in fire as a consuming fire. Inflicting upon the wicked his dreadful wrath. That's hell. There's no comforting presence of God in hell. Just God in his fury. And we see that. Because Christ says, depart from me. Departure from Christ is punishment itself. Depart from me. Do not come into the kingdom with me, but depart from me. And then he adds what their destination is. Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's where the wicked will spend eternity with the devil and his angels and so the unbeliever who hears those words from jesus christ in the scripture or in the preaching of the gospel must tremble must tremble and must flee from the wrath to come and must seek Refuge in the blood of Jesus Christ because there is the only way of escape from such everlasting fire. And there is no escape after one enters that fire. Only in the way of faith in Jesus Christ in this life do we have everlasting life and thus escape that awful judgment of hell. But for us, beloved, for us who are the sheep, who are the righteous, who are blessed of the Father, who are heirs of an everlasting kingdom, there is eternal life. And there's the contrast, fire on the one hand versus life on the other. Punishment on the one hand versus blessedness and kingdom and inheritance on the other. Come, not depart. Come, come into Christ's presence, into Christ's kingdom. That is life and its eternal life, everlasting life. Life that never ends. Life with Christ, life with God, fellowship with God, the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ. That's blessedness, beloved. And that's joy. And that's what awaits us at the point of death and especially on the last day. And that's why, beloved, we do not fear the judgment day. We ought not to fear the judgment day. It's fearful for the wicked, but not fearful for us. And that's why we watch and pray and wait. And that's why we serve the Lord with gladness, not to inherit the kingdom by our works, but out of thankfulness to him who has prepared for us this kingdom. And so we pray, come, come, Lord Jesus, come in thy glory, come with all thy angels and sit upon the throne of thy glory and bring us into thy kingdom. Amen.